Welcome to Decolonizing Ideas, a podcast from the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. From 2021 to 2024, we're hosting the Institute Project on Decoloniality, supporting over 100 researchers from around the world to come to Edinburgh to explore issues including decolonizing gender and sexuality, decolonizing the curriculum, anti-colonial and decolonial theory, intersectionality and multiple inequalities, Scotland's role in the British Empire, the University of Edinburgh's own colonial legacy and alumni roles in the slave trade, and the histories of Edinburgh graduates and staff of colour. Decoloniality is a complex area of study, covering many ways of thinking and processes of action. This is our working definition, which isn't intended to exclude any decolonial scholars or theoretical frameworks. Informed by the work of a variety of writers in both the Global South and Global North, and spanning indigenous rights, Africana thought and movements for reparatory justice, decolonial inquiry contends that knowledge generated within what's termed a colonial matrix of power has left us with a narrow, patriarchal and contested understanding of ourselves and the world. One means of addressing this is to challenge accepted theories of knowledge about the modern and the global, understood as epistemic disobedience, with a view to reimagining and reconstructing our world something in which university-based teaching and learning, research and wider community engagement is pivotal. You can visit our website to find out more at www.iash.ed.ac.uk. Join us for a series of discussions about race, racialization, and decoloniality. Welcome to Decolonizing Ideas. This episode features two postdoctoral fellows at IASH, Dr. Nadine Dekak and Dr. Ali Kassem. They're working with IASH and the Al-Walid Centre at the University of Edinburgh in 2021-2022. Hi everyone, I'm so happy to be here today with my colleague Ali. We are both IASH Al-Walid Fellows at the University of Edinburgh and we'd be happy to talk about our research at IASH, uh, but also in general about the region that we work on, what we understand decoloniality to be in the region, and why it's important for the region in general. Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Ali. So as, as Nadine mentioned, we're both uh, postdoctoral fellows here, here at the Institute of Advanced Studies. And we're also both affiliated to the Al-Walid Center here as well, um, and hopefully Throughout this conversation, we'll be talking a bit about what that means and, and uh, our own research, but also more broadly about some of the questions related to um, the colonial and, and the region on which we both work in, in different ways and, and from, from different positions. So both of us work on, um, and we're going we're gonna to actually um, talk a bit about what we call this region. So it's the whole question of whether we work on the Middle East or the Arab world. Some people have been pushing for calling um, this part of the world um, Swana, which is Southwest Asia and North Africa. I work particularly on the Gulf. I, I work more on the Mediterranean, so and the Eastern Mediterranean specifically. Um, although increasingly, I've you know I've begun doing work in, in other parts, but not not the Gulf. So so Tunisia uh, and in, in Egypt somewhat, um, but definitely not not the Gulf. Um, so but yeah, so the question of naming is definitely a big one, because obviously Middle East only makes sense if you're in the US um, because it's the east of the west um, and it's not in the middle of anything. Um, so a big a big question is, you know, middle of what, east of 
uh, middle middle of middle of where east of what and and that's why i think you know namings that refer to it in terms of its position within asia make a lot of sense um and particularly kind of a part of it being west asia a part of it being north africa make a lot more sense so i wouldn't identify myself as someone who works on the middle east but probably you know it's it's um yeah that that's how this knowledge gets constructed so can i can i ask what wording do you use in your own research ali i'm curious about um so do you actually use south west asia or or not middle east definitely so i i managed to dodge this so far because i've so working on lebanon um i've been using eastern mediterranean um mm. which which mainly just kind of refers to that space which includes you know lebanon and, and surrounding spaces um but increasingly when i've had to refer to the broader region i have been using west asia north africa um but i would also say that again it's 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 not just the name because it obviously designates a particular space and and it's often used to homogenize a space and i don't think you know as as hopefully would come out from this conversation it's a very very heterogeneous region and talking about it as one poses a lot of difficulties and raises a lot of its particularities so um so yeah i think i'm probably using west asia now a lot more yeah yeah i mean for me because i work on the gulf I just I mean most of the the terms that I use throughout my work is the gulf or the gulf states but I I I mean I situate the gulf within the Arab world so again it's the question of where does the gulf fit and and I think once I talk a bit more about my research I will say how there's like this push as well for the gulf to be understood not only part of the Arab world but also part of um you know the indian ocean world and mm. and his, historically it was part of the indian ocean world and so there's a lot of emphasis on trying to understand the gulf not just in relation to like uh, arab countries but also in relation to south asia east africa and so on um it's not easy but again like you said there's um it's not easy to shift the terminology because this is what we use in a, a lot of the times um and obviously in arabic is different but i think also in arabic we use the same words to refer to the region on the news um and these words are just i mean the terminology is taken for granted even though and words like the middle east or the arab world they do have um colonial legacies they're eurocentric like you said and it's just um i think it's good that we began this conversation with terminology because if we don't question the words we don't question the borders of the region how this region came to be what it is and borders are important because um i think the re- the region is still witnessing a lot of violence because of borders contested borders and and accordingly contested identities and contested citizenship and who belongs here and who belongs there and also what you said about how some um, some some groups don't feel that these terminologies represent the minorities in the region yeah absolutely that that was a, that was a lot Nadine. um so definitely also keeping in mind the fact so even the term arab world is is you know is really really problematic so what i've been using in my work is arab majority uh because in in some way i think one can argue that it is arab majority but a lot of the people who live in the region um and who have always lived in the region for you know throughout the past decades do not identify as arab in lebanon we have a very colonial conversation about not being arab um and about finishing whatever that means which is you know very problematic but i think a lot of other communities um you know the armenians the syrians kurdish communities and so on um i don't know 
some of them might identify as Arab, some of them might not, and they're a huge portion of, of, of the population in the region. So, But it's really interesting that you highlight that this is also in Arabic, um, because those categories have been translated, and they've become the categories we think of, even if we're thinking yeah. in, in Arabic, you know, and even if we're reading in Arabic. Um, and that really shows the hegemony of this, and, and also it has a very specific history because it's really interesting that in France, for example, up to today, they still don't use Middle East a lot, they use Near East. So, for example, French Institute, it's Institut Français du proche orient It's not, uh, it's not Middle, it's, it's Near. Because for France, the way it imagined it, this was the, the closer part of the East to it, not, not as, you know, the, because the US comes at it from the other way. This so, is really interesting, I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah, so, so there are all of these all of these contested things with the movement of, you know, the, the, the metropole and the center of empire from, from Europe and Western Europe to the U.S. increasingly over the past couple of decades, these terms have changed in the region as well. Yeah. And Lebanon, it wasn't, you know, in Arabic, it wasn't called Middle East, it was called Near East. And you get all of these, um, you know, all of these words that are very, very loaded. And as you say, that, that are super, super powerful in determining people's lives and, you know, migration movement, moving across borders where you can and cannot belong. Um, and in a world which is defined by its so-called refugee crises, um, these, these become really, really powerful and, and borders and boundaries and nations and, and identities become the spaces on which different forms of racism and discrimination and, and inferiorization and um, privileges and rights and, and all of it unfold. So, so they are very, very powerful. And also, even if we think of the region, right, because what does it mean to belong to the Arab region? Um, <laughs> As, you know, as, as, as such a heterogeneous place, but also as a place where... So one, one really ironic example of this is that when, when we had a research project of mostly German, uh, German and, and Swiss academics and a couple of Lebanese academics on it as well, and we had a research seminar in Jordan, which is you know, right, right, very, very close to Lebanon, yeah. um, and then another one in Tunisia. And these are both parts of supposedly the, the, the Middle East, uh, North Africa region, the, the Arab world and so on. People with Lebanese passports couldn't get into Tunisia without a priority approved visa. But people with the German passport could. Right? So um, you get all of these forms of inequality. What does it mean to be Arab if, if Europeans can move around the region in a way that people from other parts cannot? Right? So, yeah. 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 And I think in the Gulf, this is, you know, really quite obvious uh, yeah. and, and powerful in many different ways. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, because I work on Arab migration to the Gulf, and it's always the question of how is an Arab migrant supposed to feel in the Gulf? I mean, supposedly they speak the same language, and they have a lot of, like, cultural commonalities, and sometimes they're also, like, religious commonalities as well. The assumption is that it shouldn't feel that they're moving or migrating to a different place, but it is very different. So it makes you question what does it mean to be Arab? Um, and, and what you're saying is exactly, um, it's just the fact that these are not just questions that we reflect on, our, on our, in our own research or academically. These are questions that affect our everyday understanding of who we are. So I'm someone who identifies from the Arab world, but this, and, and I do think that I am Arab, so I'm from the Arab world technically. I speak Arabic. But I don't know whether that would then affect how I perceive myself in relation to other Arabs from different countries and, and so on. And what you said about um, some Lebanese people having this um, idea of we're not Arab, 
It's also common in Egypt, right? I mean, there's this this idea of Egypt, Egyptians are not Arab, and the Arabness came through Islam, right? And um, and it's it's very different in the Gulf because then you have notions of Arabness as having this pure origin, and, and it becomes the basis of exclusion as well. So people who do not have Arab origins then are discriminated against, seen as um, not you know, not, not having the right to be naturalized, not having or not being authentic citizens like other Arabs uh, and so on. It's, it's, I think this is a conversation that could go on forever, right? Yeah, but that's, no, that's really interesting. I would actually, so what would the difference in the Gulf be between the experiences of someone who is racialized as Arab versus the experience of someone who is racialized as white? And what kinds of discrimination do you, do you see there? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's the whole question of there being a, a, a social hierarchy. It's complex. Uh, but, I mean, if you're Arab, it really, it really differs. Because if you're an Arab from, uh, I don't know, from Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, it's not the same as being Arab from Lebanon or Syria, right? It depends on origins. Families really matter. Tribes matter. Um, but there's also the, the question of, um, so in the labor hierarchy, the work at work, you know, at a company, someone who's white could get a higher salary or could be given a, a higher position than an Arab migrant from Lebanon, for example, just by virtue of them being white, not necessarily um, through qualification. So it's it's a very complex kind of dynamic, but it makes but and these these hierarchies have existed because we go back to the question of colonization. It's because of the presence of colonialism in the region and how they were imposed. Uh, and so on. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very it's you know the, the the dynamics are very similar in Lebanon, but they're applied in very very different ways. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you know, but obviously in Lebanon, if you're Arab, you're discriminated against, and the more Arab you are, the more inferior you are. Um, and it really includes language, of course, because as you know, you know Lebanese Lebanese Arabic is loaded with French and, and English words, and it's um, and we have these powerful powerful calls to. Um, Latinize how we write uh, Lebanese Arabic and so on. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, those forms of discrimination also exist, but they're a bit, you know, it's it's like the flip coin of it. You get these, and I think also the Lebanese people perceive themselves as trying to distinguish or or distance themselves from 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 being Arab, and and that that's really where it comes from. And absolutely, it goes back to the histories of. And the legacies of colonialism that are ongoing in many, many yeah. different ways and, and many different forms across yeah. across the region, obviously. And, and also because of um, because Arab, I mean, what it means to be Arab has changed. I think in response to colonialism. So right, I mean, maybe I mean the way I understand is that originally being Arab means anyone who spoke Arabic. So if you speak Arabic, regardless of where you come from, then you're Arab. But I think then towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century in responses uh, and like mobilizations, political, but also intellectual against the Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman Empire, there was this emphasis on Arabness and then Arabness took on a different meaning in response to British and French colonialism during the era of, of Jamal Abdel Nasser, right, in the 50s. So it is then that we started to to, to see Arabness perhaps in a different way, and then the borders of what we what we now understand as the Arab world came into place. So I mean I think I I genuinely think that being Arab could be something more inclusive. It could be broadened 
or decolonized since everything is about being decolonized now so it could be thought of in different terms but it might take a lot of work and i'm sure there are many people who've been researching this and, and working on this and the development of arab identity from i don't know a few centuries ago until today no that, that's fascinating yeah. because I, I would never think of what what defines an arab as someone who speaks arabic um oh, really yeah because <laughs> I'm not sure why, and I'm, and I'm pretty much, I'm pretty pretty sure this has a lot to do with you know my own colonization. But um, even even so, I've always found these categories. So if you think of Africa, right? If we think of Tunisia and Morocco and so on, um, why are these not African countries? And what does it mean to you know the, the racialization of, of of being African and and the difference between being African and being Arab? Because obviously there's that you know African Arab. What does that mean? You know, are you from? You know, where are you from? That it doesn't make a lot of sense, or being black Arabs, and, and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, you can have your own reflect, you know, or, or being racialized as phenotypically white and, and being Arab, and what, what does that mean? Um, but I've always thought of Arabness, it's for me, and, and this is because I, I think this is where it gets interesting, is I've always thought of Arabness as the Gulf, right? <laughs> They're the Arabs. They're the real Arabs, you know? And everyone else isn't. They just got lumped into it because they, they speak the language. Um, particularly because I think so Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, you know, that part of the Mediterranean has a very, very different history and a very, very, very different experiences. And also if you think of, you know, North, so-called Northern Africa, um, Tunisia, Morocco and so on, they also have very, very different experiences. But I, you know, if, if you ask me, so how do you, or how could you, you know, say, okay, what counts or what, you know, what, what is an Arab identity? What kind of cultural habits does it contain, what kind of, you know, even if we think of things like art or uh, music or uh, cuisine and food and so on, um, there's, in my imagination, which is, you know, doesn't say much, but in my imagination, there's something about the Gulf um, that doesn't exist in other places. But it's really interesting that you said, well, yeah, but the Gulf, you know, it's Indian Ocean and what does it, how does it relate mm. to those other places? And, and then I'm like, oh, wait, that doesn't stand either. So it's, w- what does it end up being? But anyway. Um, yeah, but this is so interesting. I mean, thank you for mentioning that because I haven't thought how different our perspectives would be considering that we come from countries which are very close, technically. I'm, I mean, I'm Syrian, but, but the fact that I was raised in Kuwait, I've never seen Arabness as something related to Kuwait or the Gulf at all. I always had this kind of idea of Arabness being people who, you know, people in the Arab world in the sense that they speak Arabic, these countries. I never associate it with the Gulf, but what you're saying is, is definitely right because I've been reading about, um, or I came across um, something written about how people in Egypt also use the word Arab to describe pe- people from the Gulf. So even if they identify as Arab because they're part of the Arab world and they speak Arabic, they also use Arab to refer to the people from the Gulf, So which is could be slightly similar to what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if we talk about if we move to uh, talk about the Gulf in particular, what you're saying about um, the Gulf being part of the Indian Ocean, there's I've been reading quite a lot of interesting research written on that, and part of its importance comes from the fact that it highlights the Gulf's cosmopolitanism. Right? It's not mm. it's not people from the Arab region per se. I mean, it's there are Persians, there are people from Africa, there are people from Asia who have lived in the region. Um, for, for, for a really long time. Um, and it's just this idea that 
you need to be Arab in order to be recognized as an authentic citizen that puts that puts a lot of exclusion on certain um, groups of people and 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 there's been a push to go against that uh, push to in, in that sense to decolonize the Gulf because it is the, the idea of the Gulf as Arab is also has also come with the emergence of these states as nation states in the aftermath of, of independence from um, British colonialism for the majority of them anyway yeah absolutely no and, and and I also think one thing we can bring into this is, is religion so in Lebanon mm-hmm. for example um, Palestinian refugees who came to Lebanon um, who are you know also supposedly a part of the Arab world um, Christian Palestinians got naturalized and became Lebanese citizens but non-muslim Palestinian has and and they cannot right so they can't even apply for them. they're they're not eligible even if they've been living yeah. You know, even if their grandparents came to Lebanon and they their parents lived their whole lives in Lebanon and they were born and raised and themselves have lived their whole lives in Lebanon, they're not eligible to apply to any form of naturalization. They can't even own land. Um, they can't do anything. Basically, they have to live in refugee camps and so on. Um, but that wasn't the case for Christian Palestinians. And I think that also has to do with, you know, forms of, 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 of religion being understood as... Make, because, because Le- you know, I don't want to say this in... I don't want it to come off too strong, but in many different ways, Arabness is a stigma in Lebanon. You know, um, in uh, at least in in kind of middle class, um, in, in in more middle class or upper class circles, and in that space, there are things that can make you less Arab. Uh, you know, l- less different, um, like what? Like religion, uh, and, and and that. So by being Arab Christian, then okay, you're you know. It's like you're okay, uh, but if you're if you're not, then and also it's really because so you're from Syria, you can probably say more about this. But in kind of the Lebanese imaginary, Syria is there are different parts. So there are parts of Syria that are closer to us, and there are parts of Syria that are more Arab and they're like a bit, you know, more racialized and more inferiorized, and and they're they're very they're they're, they're geographic, you know. So you get these regions that are like, oh, they're 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 cool, and, and the other ones that are not. Um, so, so it's really interesting how these things get mapped out. And, and, and these are really very, very powerful things that determine people's possibilities in life and what kinds of yeah. what kinds of things they can do and what kind of things they can't. But what you're saying about the naturalization of, um, or like, you know, Palestinian um, refugees, they're, they're refugees, right, who are granted citizen, Lebanese citizenship because of their religion, isn't that like a reflection of the whole wider um, sectarianism in Lebanon? Is, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just a small part of how things are going in the country in terms of religious divisions and so on. Well, yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think sectarianism is, is useful, but I, it's obviously a very, very problematic lens to, yeah. to study how things unfold in Lebanon. It's, you know, it's been extensively critiqued as being the yeah. super Eurocentric uh, narrative of what's happening. Um, and also something that exceptionalizes the space. You know, this is, you know, other countries have politics, Lebanon has sectarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's definitely a lot in terms of you know the, the the hierarchy of religious and sectarian belongings in Lebanon that is very very directly that comes very clearly from France you know because yes. Lebanon never existed before it wasn't a, you know it never existed it, it wasn't a thing it was made into a thing by the French to to carve out they understood it as as carving out a space um, for specifically Maronite Christians to to have a a homeland in, in a way to, to stay in the east um and, and and to to have their own country um 
and and that was really based on many many forms of exclusion and discrimination including against you know the muslim population that lived in the surrounding region or within the space um but also even other christian groups so eastern christian uh groups were were very much discriminated against because the maronites I mean, they have a very specific history but they're i mean one one thing that is usually said about they they've always had very very strong ties uh to france um and and, and to the vatican and and they're you know they're they're catholic uh group as well and that has always formed the basis of lebanese identity. that was the invention of lebanese identity and that's where it started so it started off as a very hierarchized space where there's a dominant group and but of course that has changed a lot particularly with you know with world war Two and, and the weakening of france and the emergence of the u.s and the whole u.s uh soviet union whatever it was um a lot a lot a lot has changed since but you get those legacies that continue to exist and even within the legal systems and even within everyday practices yeah And I would say this is very similar as well to the case of the Gulf. So there is also this lens of sectarianism being critiqued in the case. It's very different, but it's also very similar because it's a colonial legacy <clears throat> in the case of um, Bahrain. So this, and not just in the case of Bahrain, other countries in the region, you know, the Sunni Shia kind of um, sectarianism. It's it's not like, uh, uh, so what, what some, many researchers have been arguing, it's not like these divisions have not existed in the past but they took on a different form because of colonialism. And certain divisions were entrenched because of colonialism um, and because of the borders, whether they are physical, geographic borders or, or social borders that, were, um, that, that came into place in the early 20th century towards the mid-20th century. So it's, it is very similar to what you're saying um, about Lebanon. Yeah. Absolutely. These, I think these things happen you know, not just across the region, but across, yeah. across the global south and across the world. And then you know the, the colonial question is is all over them, right? And even even today, even f- so, obviously, I think we're both agreeing here that um, when we talk about the colonial, we're not talking about historical colonialism only, because we are talking about ongoing uh, coloniality, which includes the legacies of empire and the legacies of the colonial in terms of you know establishing these nation states and their political systems and and so on. Um, but also beyond that, because I'm I, for me, I. This, this this other day I was asked, you know, what was my first encounter with with the colonial? <laughs> I was like, that's a very difficult question because it's always been there. You know, I've I've never not had it there. And at school, for example, we were we always had this hierarchy about speaking French and 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 speaking English. And the more French and English you speak, and if you and the less Arabic you speak, then the the higher up you are on the hierarchy of you know of who, of who you are and how worthy you are and how civilized you are and how cultured you are yeah. and so on. So we get all of these things that are there, you know, even for kids and even when, the, when they're little. And within my own families, we had, you know, my, my, I have a little brother and my mom had this really crazy decision that no one is allowed to speak to him in, in, in Arabic. Um, you, we can only speak to him in French until he's six. And, and then after six, you know, after he's, he's six years old, then he'll, he'll start learning Arabic. So he can improve the language. Yeah, so he can oh. be can like really really good in French. And now he's in high school. Um, he's in grade ten, and and now he decided that he wants to drop Arabic and he doesn't <laughs> want to you know he doesn't want to learn it anymore. And and I'm going crazy. I'm like you can't. This is your language, and you know. And, and he's like, no, it's a stupid language. It's very difficult. And and but these things these things are there throughout, and and the forms of inferiority that that they produce and reproduce, and even, you know, forms of internalized um, orientalism and internalized inferiority and and internalized senses of 
of self-hate in, in many different yeah. ways are, are very powerful. But it's yeah. so interesting to hear that. You know, I, I think it, I think it's a similar scene and I don't know, is it is it so with the golf Americanizing in, in many different ways? Yeah. Um, what you're saying is, is very applic- it's very different because Lebanon has the the legacy of French colonialism, which is very different from British colonialism. And and it's also very different in the case of the Gulf. So yes, there's like a push for not a push, but like there are so many obviously bilingual schools, American schools, British schools, and also universities, because of also countries like Qatar and others um, wanting to have um, um, you know an education economy and having all these um, um, branches of US campuses and so on. Uh, and it, and what you're saying, so you you talked about the level of how how that um, feeling of inferiority translates at the level of everyday sort of identification um, and how you understand yourself and how you you know the kinds of um, I don't know school education in a sense, but it, it's also if it's also I think visible in our own research, right? Because when you come to read about the region. You don't read, I don't know about you, but you don't read so much in, in Arabic. You find that most of the research being published um, in the region, uh, on the region, is in English. And so it translates to the level of knowledge production. And, and I think the origins of that are education. Um, and it is very, it's very evident in the case of um, the Gulf and, and also in the case of, of other regions being researched. Um, you know, there are people producing knowledge in Arabic but it's marginal um, because of the politics of translation, because of the politics of citation, and also knowledge production itself depends on a number of factors. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just amazing to see how it translates at different levels, right? This whole language issue comes even to the point when you become a researcher and you choose which language do you want to work with. And these are very existential questions to me and you as well, right? Yeah. As people working on the region in English. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it's not just... I mean, it's it's really great that you mentioned translation because obviously, I mean, translation is is not just translation, right? So when we translate, we are translating across epistemologies. We are translating across. There's a lot of erasure that takes place. There's a lot that's untranslatable and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And also thinking of, you know, what are we doing in terms of research and in terms of being academics? And as you say, one, we, I can't, you know, we don't really engage with the knowledge that is being produced in Arabic and that has long been, yeah. been produced in Arabic. But also we don't even, or I don't, a lot of us don't disseminate our work in Arabic either. Um, and personally, I can't write in Arabic. So it's very, very difficult for me to produce a, a text. And I mean, I can write in English, I can write in French, I can probably write in German. I can't write in Arabic, which is pathetic, you know. Um, and and what, I've, what I've been doing, I've actually been not getting friends to, like trying to produce small pieces of text um, and, and translating them. So I have to write them in English and then... We translate them so that we can publish them in Arabic, so that some of the things that I, that, that I'm doing, which which are really relevant for the people living in, in in that part of the world, so that that access can exist and that kind of form of um, engagement with the social can exist, and yeah. it's really super super like you say, it's it's an existential crisis about what's the point of doing this and only speaking to an English speaking audience or only speaking yeah. to your American audience, and and where will that get us, and what kind of change will that do? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is. You know, I, I love you saying it's an existential crisis because it very, very much is on so many levels. Yeah, um, it's it's just difficult. What you're saying about you having to actually put the effort to improve, for example, you, for for us who've uh, I don't know 
got an English education or did the PhD in English and had to write our um, research in English, it actually takes a lot of effort to start writing in another language if you haven't been used to that. But I remember once meeting an, um, an academic um, who was based at a, an institution in Qatar and he was saying, you know, it was also the same for me, but it, I just trained myself. I was teaching myself to write in Arabic, not because I can't write in French. He was educated in France and he wrote in French, but because it's not something that comes easily. You're going to actually have to invest in it and I think if we, th I think if we see that as part of decoloniality, of uh, it is definitely not an easy process. It needs to. It's intentional. It needs to come with effort. Um, otherwise, it won't happen. And it's at the level of everyday, uh, yeah, trying to read in in a different language, trying to 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 write in a different language, and trying to think of the knowledge that we produce where it fits. Yeah, so absolutely, on. absolutely, and yeah. this really shows like the added labor that you you know you need to do and that you that you get burdened with if you want to do this kind of work and and, and how difficult it becomes yeah. and and really shows how you know how how the question of decolonization is not just about you know it goes back to schools it goes back to you know basic socialization um, families and, and so on and how I don't know about you but we weren't we never read you know we never we never grew up reading Arabic. Or reading Arabic novels, or reading Arabic, you know that that wasn't a part of our yeah. social environment at all. Now, um, my case is less severe, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you know, it's interesting because in Lebanon we have this. Well, how do I say this? This idea that people in Syria are really good at Arabic. Yeah, and very they, stereotypical. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. And there was this whole thing with with when when the Syrian um, refugees came into Lebanon. And they were supposed to enter the Lebanese so in the Lebanese educational system, even you know state schools and so on, even today, you, so science subjects are taught in either French or English. They can't be taught in Arabic. That we they, they, no one does, but in Syria they are. They're taught in Arabic. And I think that was you know you mentioned Abu Nasser earlier, and I think that that was a part of particular processes yeah. that happened in Syria and in Egypt and in other parts of the Arab world that didn't happen in Lebanon um, in, in in the second part of the of the past century. Yeah. But they had this thing where they were saying kids, you know, Syrian Syrian ch children and, and young people who entered Lebanese schools couldn't work, you know, they can't switch to learning biology and physics and chemistry and math in, into French or English, even even if they had learned French and English. So they had a lot of difficulties and they were asking that they be taught it in, in Arabic. And the Lebanese state, you know, that wasn't, you know, we, we don't even have, our teachers can't teach in Arabic, you know, it doesn't work. Um, and even that's, in government schools, you yeah, don't have yeah. an Arabic no, 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 you, it's, uh, you have to pick either French or English. Um, and historically it was French. And also sectarianism also comes in because generally m Christian majority regions do it in French and Muslim majority <laughs> regions do it in English. And it's really because at one point it was like, okay, so you have the French on your side. Let's, you know, let's see if we can get the British on our side. And, um, and you know, there, there are all of these politics about how do you appeal to different imperial powers and mm -hmm. how do you draw those lines. But but yeah, it's um, you know, again, it has it had a huge impact on on so many people, and it harmed so many people's education. Um, but yeah. it was definitely you know the colonial history was ongoing. Yeah, this is very interesting. We um, in in Kuwait, I think this is also the difference, right? So Lebanon was one of the countries whose own education system was shaped by French colonialism in a way. So Kuwait, where I've lived, and I'm sure that's the case for the Gulf states as well, 
the education system was very influenced by the Egyptian education system. Mm. And so, I mean, I had an Arabic education. I never studied sciences in English. I studied everything in Arabic. And so the, and it was, so the, the curriculum itself was shaped with the help of the Egyptian, Egyptian teachers, Egyptian educators, and other Arab countries as well. Um, at least for the case in, in the case of Kuwait, so it makes it very different, right? It's a, it's a different conversation. It's 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 something that also shapes the kinds of generations that are educated in these countries. What kinds of options they have when it comes for university educations, and if they become researchers, then what kind of knowledge they'll be producing, or um, what kinds of change they will be doing in their own countries in, in the future? Absolutely, and I, and I think the history of you know Arab nationalism. And, and what happens in terms of Arab nationalism. I think Egypt was obviously really, yeah. really central in that. And Syria as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I think that had a huge influence on, particularly on education systems in, in a lot of places. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't, you know, that never happened in Lebanon. What happened, so there were things like nationalizing, so the Lebanese, the state university, there was a movement at one point to make it possible to learn things in Arabic there. Um, but again, that maps out. So, and you you might find some faculties that teach some things, you know, in terms of higher education, in Arabic. But they're also again mostly in, in Muslim majority regions, and yeah. and that also maps out in terms of how good the degree is considered to be, um, the quality of the education, the quality of the infrastructure, and so on. But otherwise, you know that yeah, that is that is a different scene, which which as you say, then again ends up producing what kind of scholars we get and what kind of researchers we get. But in Lebanon, it's the other way around. So people who it's not possible to, to, to be a well-regarded academic if you publish in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, unless you... And, and increasingly, it's you have to publish in English. Uh, French has become less and less powerful. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, Arabic is not really a choice. You, you do that... And, unless you're super, So you have people now at AUB, at the American University of Beirut, who are super established, you know, they're... they're they're Ivy League graduates who spent half of their lives in, you know, in Colombia and, um, and MIT. And now they're like, we want to publish in Arabic um, because we want to do this. And, and, and it's interesting. And they get to do it a bit because they are who they are, which is interesting how these politics of decolonization and who can decolonize, who had, you know, if, if someone who's, who, who doesn't have that identity says, I want to publish in Arabic, they're like, oh, of course you want to publish in Arabic. You know, it's, it's you, it's, who, it's what you do. Um, so it's really interesting how these, you know, how this decolonization is unfolding. But yeah, it's, it's very, very nascent and, and not, not developed at all. Yeah, it, but yeah, I mean, I think it also reflects on the publishing industry though, right? The publishing industry and also what kind of funding do you have to do to do research in Arabic or to do research mm-hmm. in English? Funding really matters. I always think of these things as structural. It's not just a question of you making the decision to be an Arab, you know, an Arabic researcher in the sense of researching in, in the Arabic language and writing in the Arabic language, or making the decision to do it in French and English, because if you don't have institutional funding, you don't get to do research. And the reasons why some institutions that research and publish in Arabic don't have funding are also structural, right? I mean, who gets funding and who doesn't? Who gets to do research and who doesn't? Um, very often academics are, in, in, at least in Kuwait, and, and I'm sure that's the case in many other countries in the region, are overburdened with a lot of teaching. <laughs> and they, don't, they don't get to do as much research as they'd like to do, and, and that really is a question of structural inequality in the world in general, and academic inequality. So if um, I'm thinking here that if we want to 
tackle the struggle in our own research <laughs> mm. how how would you then uh, and it's just this is out of curiosity how would you so you mentioned about the difficulty of writing in arabic or reading in arabic how do you tackle that are you uh, i mean are you exploring what is being written about your research in arabic to see whether there are parallels to see whether there are points of connection that can be made regardless of how difficult that could be because of where you are based and the kind of education that you've had in your past or in your future research mm. i think <laughs> this is you you bring up something that's really interesting and really really challenging because i think and this is you know i'm just going to say this and i again i don't want it to sound too uh, to to come off as too strong but i think in many ways decolonization in english has made a lot more advances than it has in arabic mm-hmm. so I've tried so one one thing that I've done is I've tried engaging the Lebanese university at one point and the Lebanese university is the state university where you'll find a lot more arabic than you would in in, in private institutions and of course it's a very so it, it is marginalized in many different ways um it's very impoverished it has you know its, its struggles and so on um but a particular particularly over the past couple of decades there has been an increasing presence of of arabic and arabic scholarship within the Lebanese university and at one point i was like this is excellent i have to get out of the bubble of you know um of ab i have to get out of the bubble of westernized education and, and i'm going to go and engage with the lebanese university and i went there and those people there who do teach in arabic or write in arabic they translate from french and they translate from english but, but more from french and they're all so they they use arabic as a language but epistemologically it's all french and english and it's it's and what i found was that the conversations i was having in english at ub were much much more critical and much more kind of trying to to counter eurocentric categories and concepts and so on and to think of the histories of the colonial and all of that than the ones they were having there in in arabic they were talking about durkheim you know and i was like you know durkheim seriously that's i mean you know that's that is so problematic on so many levels why are you using their time to theorize something that's happening you know that's like the worst person you can use um but um but but they were still stuck in that space and for them if they would if they don't they would be completely delegitimized as people who are doing social science so specifically i'm talking about people who do sociology and, and, and political science so to get the legitimacy if you're using arabic you have to use you know all the references are either translations or works in english all the concepts the categories they use come from uh the canons of sociology the european canons of sociology and and political science yeah. so it was very disappointing and that was one of my experiences when i was like okay this is definitely not you know not the place that's happening and it's ironic that i can really talk about decoloniality with people in the in the us in in ways that are that i could never doing yeah. with, with people who are in Lebanon and with people who are even even the ones who are trying to, to write in Arabic um which which really shows how challenging it, these these questions get and that a lot of times the knowledge that other pe- that, that that people have in the region are is very much colonized uh, and has already been colonized and it's been colonized you know it's it's a process that's been happening over the past at least 300 years yeah. so um So you're saying that the kind of change you're seeing or whatever looked like change it was just at the surface it wasn't it was an actual reconsidering the terms that they're using and so on and they were just translating things and 
Yeah, and it, was it really... sounds very familiar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was really dangerous because it was, one, reproducing those things. Um, and two, being done out of position. So a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them who wanted to write in Arabic didn't want to write in Arabic. Um, well, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of people did want to write in Arabic to, to, re, to reclaim that. But yeah. I, I, I know that a lot of people wanted to write in Arabic because they felt, well, we can't compete with knowledge being produced in English and French. Um, and we can't establish ourselves and, and you know, we, we don't want to speak to the audience. There's too much what for whatever reasons. Uh, so we might kind of do our own niche and do this in Arabic, but technically they're doing the same, the same thing. It's the same language, the same conversation yeah. and the same discourse and categories that are structuring what they say and what they do not say. Um, so, I mean, this kind of really takes us to the question of if we want to decolonize, where, and, and if we keep in mind, of course, the fact that colonization has been happening since 1492 and it's a process that has, that's been going on for the past 500 years and that has really shaped the planet in, in, in every single dimension. Where do we find these alternative knowledges? Where do yeah. we find these these spaces that will allow us to contest the knowledges, the, the dominant Eurocentric knowledges that we have that have become, you know, common sense and natural and, and so-called universal yeah. and so on? And it's really frustrating when you see a lot of othered communities reproducing that same knowledge, and you're like, "Oh, I thought I would find something here, but you know, it's not there." <laughs> so you know, and, and again, another existential crisis. <laughs> But what you're saying is exactly right because it's not just a question of language, right? I mean, you don't just shift languages and suddenly you're thinking in a, in a different way. There, I think there's a lot of people who put a lot of emphasis on language in the sense that, for example, you publish like a piece in English, a very critical piece, you know? You just publish it in English for whatever reason in, a, in some English, like, you know, magazine or website. And then you have all these sort of people saying, well, you know, this should be translated. Why is this in English, not in Arabic? There's a lot of anger. And I, and I understand where that's coming from, because, because divisions in who speaks the line English and who doesn't are very often also class divisions, yeah. right? So when you pu- decide to publish a piece that is relevant to a certain segment of the population in some part of the region in English, you are excluding people who don't read that language, even though that piece is for them and they just don't read it because they didn't have the education to do so. And I understand that, but also sometimes this emphasis on language is superficial because it homogenizes people as well. It assumes that all people come from, all people from the region come from the same background, they have the same education, even though it's it's very hybrid. I mean, it's a very mixed, uh, you know, people can, for all sorts of reasons, migrate and get another language and feel more comfortable speaking English or French, which doesn't mean that they are not very critical. I mean, you can speak English and French and you can publish in English and French and be more critical than someone who's doing it in Arabic without much understanding of why it's happening. It's a, it's a very frustrating thing, actually. I've, I've had experiences feeling not very comfortable speaking academically in Arabic about my research and sort of feeling like an outsider because there's the assumption that it's not like you're showing off, but you know, why don't you just speak Arabic? You're an Arab. And it comes with all sorts of essentialist assumptions about, you know, how an Arab should be, what what they should speak. But I've taken this to a personal level, so... No, definitely, no, definitely, <laughs> but it reflects the conversation absolutely, that you're absolutely. trying to raise. It does. It, does. it does in so many different ways, and I think it's really important. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And when we think about why we're doing what we're doing again, and, and, and when we think about what we want out of it, uh, and who we want to speak to, it's, it's really frustrating to find that you... You know, why can I speak to... In, 
to an English. So, for example, in my teaching, I've, I've tried teaching in Lebanon. Um, and people in, so you teaching in, in here in, in, in the UK or, or teaching in, you know, I've taught in other places. I've taught, in, you know, for, for Finnish students and, and so on. There's a lot more space to talk about decolonization and the decolonial than there is in a lot of spaces in Lebanon and in the region more broadly. And sometimes I get the feeling that people who have tried out modernity and have found it to be, you know, this is, you know, not, there's not so much to it, um, <laughs> are much more open to, to critiques of it than people who feel that this is something they still haven't reached uh, and that they still have to, to you know, to, to, to develop and become. So in, in Lebanon, I've had conversations again with people at the Lebanese university and I'm like, well, what you're doing with your education system is, you know, completely westernizing it. I'm like, yes, I'm like, well, that's a problem. And they're like, what do you mean that's a problem? That's, you know, that's, that's what we've been working for. And when you come to those people and say, what you've been, you, you know, you, your labor for the past 10 years has been seeking to get you up in, in terms of rankings. And this is horrible because it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a messed up system. It's, it's a very Eurocentric, epistemologically colonizing system. And they're like, we've been working to, 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 you know, towards this for the past 10 years. You can't just come to us and say, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be kind of looking at indigenous knowledge. What does that even mean, you know? Indigenous knowledge would keep us backward. We need to develop, we need to modernize. So you, it's, it's really ironic how these conversations unfold and, and, and again, really frustrating to, to feel that who, who can you have the colonial conversations with and who can you not? And where, in what spaces can they be had and in what spaces can they be not? And, 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 and what comes into that and, and how those how they're so powerful and like you say, so structural and so institutional. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to Decolonizing Ideas, an occasional podcast series by the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. We would like to thank Dr. Ali Kassem and Dr. Nadine Dakak for their incredible contributions to this episode and offer a very special thank you to Saber Bamatraf for composing and performing our fantastic intro music. You can find a link to his music in the episode description. This series is produced by Dr. Ben Fletcher-Watson, branding and production by Lucian Stadden-Foster, recording and editing by Eric Berger.